HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Woods, your host. Sorry for the delayed start there. We had a little mix-up here in the studio. Um, you guys know who Carl Meltzer is? Carl Meltzer? No? Anyone? You never heard of him? Wow. No, sorry. No? You too, Dave? No. Well, as of today, you will. Carl Meltzer. Okay, I didn't know who he was either until... Late last night. I mean, he was basically totally obscure until yesterday because he was so busy. And he was so busy doing something. But now he's not so busy because now he's just resting from being busy because he's really, really, really tired. You know why he's so tired, you ask? Why is Carl Meltzer tired? Because Carl Meltzer just broke the world record for being the fastest ever finisher of the entire Appalachian Trail. Okay, you know the Appalachian Trail, don't you? Come on, people. You know the Appalachian Trail. It's the 2,190-mile hiking trail that runs along the entire East Coast, basically from Georgia to Maine, or from Maine to Georgia. Works both ways. The AT, the Appalachian Trail, yeah. On the West Coast, it's the Pacific Crest Trail. Longer, even. Now, you know, I hike, right? I've talked about this. I take, I hike on weekends, and I've actually done little itty-bitty bits of the AT, as we call it, the Appalachian Trail. Little bits here and there, four or five-mile stretches, nothing major, no overnights, you know, little, little bits of it. Day hikes, okay? But I always see people out on the trail. I see people who are actually doing the whole thing. You can totally tell. Obviously, they're not day hikers because they have these huge packs, and they look really, really hungry. 
all the time. They're always kind of skinny. And they also leave this like lingering cloud of terrible body odor behind them on the trail because most of them have not really showered in at this point, you know, months or, or weeks. You can just tell. They have this crazed look in their eye and often they have a lot of facial hair too, even the women. Now, but I give them like major, major respect and props for undertaking such a long trek, even if they're not doing the whole thing. It's pretty major. Now, I would like to do the whole Appalachian Trail too one day, maybe. Actually, I would, I'd rather do the, the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, because, um, you know, it's on the West Coast. It goes from Oregon to the Mexican border. You walk right up to the wall and then you stop there at the border. But um, it's a lot less humid which is why I would rather do the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, I don't want to sweat in the mountains for three months. Anyway, on average, for people to complete the Appalachian Trail, start to finish, on average, it's about a three-month trip. You basically take the entire summer. Usually people start in the spring in Georgia, and they work their way north with the summer, you know, as the weather progresses. But people also do it from north to south, of course, too. I mean, if you go from north to south, it's downhill the whole way, right? Because isn't that how things work? That's what I used to think. Um, But anyway, you know, so you either start in Georgia or you start in Maine. But in Maine, you finish on top of Mount Katahdin, which is pretty cool, too. So three months on average. That's the average takes to do the AT. Now, this guy, Carl Meltzer, remember him? This guy went a little faster than that, a little faster than three months, just a little bit, because he did it in just slightly under 46 days. 46 days. That's like six weeks. Specifically, he did it in 45 days, 22 hours, and 38 minutes. He ran. Basically, he ran almost nonstop up and down the mountain ranges of the entire East Coast from Maine to Georgia. Okay. He ran it. He beat the previous record's holder, the previous record holder's time of 46 days, 8 hours, and 7 minutes. So he beat him by about a half a day. And he knew he was behind on the last day, and so he pushed it, and he did like 85 miles the last day. Okay, this is like on foot, running. Not on the road. It's insane. Crazy. Ridiculous. You know, I thought I was pretty fit. I mean, I work out a lot, but like, Jesus Christ, that's insane. Okay, now why is this of any importance to Let's Get Real? Why does this even matter, what Carl Meltzer did? Why are you laughing? Why? Why indeed? I'm not laughing at you. (laughs) I'm laughing with you. With me at why is this important? Why? I want to know. Well, because here in the foodiness fallout shelter, as you know, we all like to hike. The whole team, right? We go on our big team building hikes all the time, don't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you're really good at trust falls, I've I've noticed. I am. I'll only push you off a cliff if you really eat bad food. So anyway... I like to hike, at least. And some of my team likes to hike. So this is very impressive to us. But that's not why this is important. What's really important and what's really interesting to us, really, really, is what he ate along the way to fuel his win. Okay? Because the previous record holder is this guy, Scott Jurek. Scott Jurek, who you may have heard of. He was made very famous by this book called Born to Run, which is about how indigenous people around the world um, in various cultures are great distance runners, you know, like the Kenyans and people who live in high altitudes are these like exceptional distance runners. And the theory behind this book is that humans are designed to run for a very long time distance run. Not me, but humans are. I'm more of a quick sprinty person. Anyway, 
Scott Jurek was featured in this book, Born to Run, and he's a big champion of barefoot running or virtually barefoot running. And he's also a big vegan, big vegan. Okay, big outspoken vegan guy. Now, he did his record-breaking Appalachian Trail run as a vegan. Vegan run, okay? Which I have to say is very impressive. Now, last few weeks, I've been kind of a vegetarian myself just because that's what I've been eating. And you know I am not a vegetarian or a vegan at all. I think we should all eat way less meat, but I'm still a carnivore. I'm an omnivore, really. I'm a plant-centric omnivore. But anyway, he's a vegan, now, I know, like, if I don't eat an egg on the morning of a big workout, I feel weak and shaky without my egg. I have to have some protein, okay? And, you know, beans can only go so far. He did the whole thing on a plant-based regimen. The whole thing. And up until, like, two days ago, he was the winner. He had done it the fastest. I don't know if he just ate plants, but he certainly didn't eat any animal products, you know, and there are certainly plenty of energy providing, you know, carby and sugary foods out there that just happen to be vegan. I mean, you know, a Three Musketeers bar is vegan, except maybe it has some gelatin in it, but you know what I mean. I mean, God knows there are plenty of overweight vegans and vegetarians who are unhealthy. I was at my fattest and most unhealthy when I actually was a vegetarian years ago. So maybe I should have done the Appalachian Trail at that point. I don't know. But Scott Jurek set the record for the AT as a vegan. But here comes Carl Meltzer, the new champion. He isn't exactly a vegan. The reason we're talking about Carl Meltzer today is because he is a total foodiness fanatic. Carl Meltzer is all about the foodiness. He fueled his record-breaking trail run on a regimen of candy, Red Bull, and beer. Yep, that's what it takes to be a winner. The breakfast of champions. <laughs> Maybe some applause for him, too. Carl <laughs> Meltzer. So he did his whole record-breaking trail run on by pounding candy, Red Bull, and beer. Okay. Now, of course, beer is not foodiness. I like beer. Beer's great. And beer provides lots of carbs for energy, you know. So every night he'd have a beer or two, but then as he was running to save time and not waste his time on eating, he would drink a Red Bull or other energy drinks every 10 miles. I've never even tasted Red Bull. I don't know what it tastes like. In my mind, it's like, like Yoohoo, but I know it's not at all. It's not milky. It's like freaky and full of taurine and creepy shit that only millennials like. I don't drink Red Bull. I've never even tasted it. But anyway... He would drink a Red Bull every 10 miles, drink his beers at night, and then at rest stops, because you know the Appalachian Trail, it actually does go through like towns and there are stores on the route because it's not all remote. It goes basically like right through metropolitan New York too. But um, he would stop at the rest stops and he would buy Spree. You know that candy, Spree? It's like sort of like sweet tarts with a coating. I used to love Spree. That's what Red Bull tastes like. Oh, it does? Yeah. Oh, that's why he likes the Spree. Oh, mm -hmm. see, it's so good you're here, Dave. <laughs> thank you. So, thank you. <laughs> in our research department. <laughs> Want me to Google anything? Fact checking. Mm, not at the moment. All right, no. let me know. Thanks. I have Google. Okay. Um, so he would buy Sprees and Three Musketeers and bacon cooked bacon and he would load up his pockets with sprees and three musketeers and cooked bacon and then he would eat as he ran i kind of love that okay as opposed as i am to fueling yourself on candy and red bull i love that he put bacon in his pockets 
So he'd keep those in his pockets and he would run. And then according to the New York Times article that I got all of this information from that detailed his when he would then sleep less than seven hours a night, get up and start running again. And occasionally his crew, his support crew, would find him napping on the trail because he would fall asleep. And they would feed him a pint of ice cream to get him going again. So fuel him up with the ice cream. Get him back on his feet. I wonder what his stomach was like through all this. And also, you know, you do have to stop and poop. And running makes you poop a lot. So, I mean, what was that situation like on a diet of Red Bull and ice cream? And I don't, I don't, I don't even want to. Okay. Let's, I don't want to talk about that. It's like those marathoners who just shit their pants while they're running. Anyway, none of those foods that he ate are, well... Okay, none of the foods he ate are true food. It's like, spree is just candy. Three Musketeers is just candy. Beer is just beer. Red Bull, total foodiness. And whatever the other unnamed energy drinks, that's straight up F-bomb foodiness. But you know what? Who cares? He won. He's the fastest Appalachian Trail runner ever. So what's even better is that he beat a smug vegan at it. I mean, what's worse, right? A smug vegan winner or a Red Bull-fueled candy-crazed winner? I don't know. It's not like you do this kind of thing every day, right? So, who, you know, you got to win it. You got to be in it to win it. I don't even really have a point here other than that I love that this guy ate all this crap and won. And the guy who's like the smug vegan advocate is now second place. Now, when he finished the race, I think he went north to south because, yeah, he finished in Spring Mountain, Georgia. He celebrated with a pizza, a pepperoni pizza and a couple more beers. And then he fell asleep. And as far as I know, he's still asleep because um, the time said he wasn't available for comment. And so he just slept and we haven't heard a peep from him since. Now, I would sleep for a week, too, after that. I ran the New York City Marathon. It took me just over five hours and I slept for a week after that. First, I ate a giant cheeseburger with foie gras on it. And then I went to bed and I didn't get up for like... 12 weeks. Basically, I didn't work out again for 12 weeks because I kept saying, oh, I just ran a marathon. I don't have to work out. 12 weeks later, I had put on like seven pounds. Back to the gym. Now, all I'm saying here is that the vegan got beat by the Red Bull guy, and I think that's pretty funny and kind of makes me giddy and happy in a perverse way because I have no major point of view on this, of course. And extreme... Yeah, as if. And extreme sports are just that, right? They're extreme, and you have to go to extreme measures to win at extreme sports. And maybe he wasn't taking, like, performance-enhancing drugs, except I don't know what's in Red Bull. I think it is full of performance-enhancing drugs, basically. But you know what? If you're running on the Appalachian Trail, you don't have time to make a little fire and cook your morning quinoa with an egg and then at lunchtime stop and make yourself, like, a little wild salmon salad with baby kale. And so, you know, you're running the entire East Coast up and down mountains. So this first segment of Let's Get Real is dedicated to you, Carl Meltzer, for your record-breaking finish and to you, Scott Jurek, also for coming in second. But maybe next time, put a little bacon in your pockets. It might help you. Yay! Now, yay. if either of you guys want to come on the show, come down into the fallout shelter and talk about this, I would love to have you on. So just let me know. I'll tweet you. I already tweeted you. Let me know. It would be fun. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, guess what? More about all kinds of foodiness stuff. We'll be right back. And this one is called Dead of Night by Bad Citizen. We'll be right back.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host. And uh, remember, you can follow Let's Get Real on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. I'm even on Instagram. Occasionally I post, believe it or not. And on Facebook, of course. Good old reliable Facebook, which by now is sort of an institution, isn't it? Okay, so Carl Meltzer, this runner who we're talking about, just completed the fastest time on the Appalachian Trail ever. Amazing. And I bet his feet were really hurting a lot afterwards. I mean, it you know, goes without saying, right? I don't know what kind of shoes he was wearing. I bet he's getting some kind of big endorsement deal now, though. My feet were hurting just thinking about his feet in, like, psychosomatic empathy for his feet. My feet were hurting. Um, now, my feet now are actually in pretty good shape. They don't hurt anymore. Because that's because I don't have to stand for 10 to 12 hours a day like I used to when I was chefing and then teaching doubles and triples at my former large culinary school employer, who shall not be named, but is not ICC, the other one. I used to have to work doubles and triples there, and my feet were fucked up. I had terrible foot pain, starting from my chefing days, because in my first restaurant job, we would stand on these mats that all kitchens have, but one day the dishwashers put the mats out on the sidewalk to wash them, and someone stole the mats, because this was in the 90s when New York was dangerous, and people stole your floor mats, and as punishment to the dishwashers from the chef, he wouldn't buy us new mats because he was mad at them for letting the mats get stolen. So we all suffered, and I developed terrible plantar fasciitis in my feet and suffered greatly, and I had three rounds of it over the years of my career. So my feet were a mess, and I would teach, and I would work 10, 12 hours, and I would hobble home in wincing in pain, and I would soak my feet in, like, scalding hot water and then ice water. I'd go back and forth. And I, like I said, had terrible plantar fasciitis. I had it three times. I spent $800 for two sets of custom orthotics that I still have. I got cortisone shot into my heels. I had acupuncture. I had PT. The worst. Everything. The works. All of it. You know what really fixed my feet? Um, Not standing so much anymore. Because when I left that job and I started doing more writing and more media and like basically living a much more relaxed life, my feet got better. So much better. Not standing 8 to 12 hours a day is really good for your feet. Now, sitting is bad for us, too, of course, and we shouldn't all be sitting all day. But I think a mix is what's really important there, right? Get up, sit down, walk around for a while. And walking is great, but standing, not so good. Okay. Oh, also, making your legs and feet much stronger will help you with that, too. Just saying. But... My feet were really messed up. And thinking about his feet, ow, like totally feeling the pain that you're feeling, Carl Meltzer. 
Now, I was thinking about feet, actually, unrelated to this. Before I even heard about the story, I was thinking about feet and about standing and about walking and stuff like that this week because Adam, my whatever we call him, husband, semi-legal husband, whatever he is, I don't know. He has really fucked up feet. He was born with messed up feet, and they're in terrible pain all the time. He started running years ago, and the running actually helped his feet a lot. But then we were hiking over the summer, and he stepped on a pebble that, like, threw his shoe, bruised his foot, and it still hurts, and he can't run, and now he's miserable because he can't run. So I was thinking about his feet. I was just, I don't know. It was a feet week when I came across the story about the Appalachian Trail record-breaking. But what I was thinking about feet, or what got me, sorry, thinking about feet, and standing this week was an ad that I saw a week or so ago in Eating Well magazine. Okay, you know, eating. It could have been cooking light. It could have been eating well. It could have been eating light. One of those. One of those magazines. Eating well, light, something. Now, you would think that the editorial standards for a magazine like Eating Well would have somewhat of a level of censorship for certain advertisers. But no, they're all just editorial whores like the rest of us. They'll take it where they can get it, right? I mean, if, you know, Coke wanted to advertise on my show here, well, I don't know. We might have to draw the line there. We'll see. But anyway, Coke, call me. Okay, we'll talk. So I'm looking through Eating Well, Cooking Light, whatever magazine, because I pulled it out of the recycling bin in my laundry room and I was waiting for the dryer and I'm flipping through and I saw an ad that like completely horrified me because this ad was for the newest spin, the newest iteration, the newest variation on that most, most evil, evil foodiness invention, the Lunchable. We haven't talked about Lunchables in a while. You know the Lunchable, right? Lunchables are these little like boxed, pre-made, pre-packaged, toddler-sized lunch nightmares of industrial food garbage that the moms of America, and maybe the dads, have embraced like they used to do with Valium in the 50s. Just love it. Love it on the Lunchables. There are these tiny packages of pre-sliced, shitty cold cuts and processed white flour bread and little Ritz crackers and industrial cheese product with a Z. The first Lunchables were that. They were like little assortments of cold cuts with little crackers or pieces of bread. You know, basically like a teeny sandwich that your teeny tot could make themselves out of shitty food. Okay. Now, those seem practically healthy, innocent, and innocuous. Vegan, practically, compared to what was to come in the Lunchable. Lunchables were just the harbinger. Harbinger. Not Harbinger, as I heard someone say once. Like Reagan once was giving a speech and um, he said, um, oh, crap, what was the word? Oh, it'll come to me. I forgot. Anyway, it was like that. Instead of Harbinger, he said Harbinger. Anyway, Lunchables were a Harbinger of an era of super convenient, super lazy and super disengaged from our food to come. An era of being super disengaged from our food. Because who would buy that shit? Now, I first thought, when I first laid eyes upon those little boxes, which perversely was in the main train station in Brussels, Belgium. Okay, isn't that weird? 
I was in Brussels in the train station and there were people there from Kraft or Oscar Mayer or whoever, whatever American megacorp invented the Lunchable. And they were handing out free samples in Belgium to Belgians, to Flemish people in Belgium. Now, Belgium, admittedly, is a boring country, but they have very good food and a long history of excellent food. What the fuck? Why were they giving out Lunchables in Belgium? Okay. Now, I thought... This is insane when I saw that. And I thought, this can't be a real thing. Maybe they, like, invented them in the U.S., but they were a flop. So they're like, let's unload them in Europe or something. I don't know. Or maybe it was some leftover, like, post-World War II food relief aid program that the government still had to, like, use up funds for or something. Like, when we dumped all the, like, spam and Velveeta in Asia after the Korean War. I don't know. Anyway, that was 20 years ago. So I opened up my copy of Eating Well in the laundry room and I'm flipping through it and there's an ad for something oh so new at least to me now it was a new level of nightmare it was like like nightmare on elm street 74 level of nightmare okay of the packaged and the processed and the insta food that we call the lunchables it was called lunchables uploaded Uploaded. Let's use the lingo that the kids use. Uploaded. Make it tech-savvy and cool and digital. Lunchables uploaded. Uploaded. Lunchables uploaded. And it's in, like, new, darker-colored, slicker-looking packaging. Okay? It doesn't look like something a toddler would eat. It looks like something a 14-year-old boy who's never left his room because all he does is play video games and jerk off would eat. Okay? That's what it looks like. (laughs) Yeah, not you, Dave. You got out of your room. Now you're in the little booth there. Uh-oh. Is that what you do when we're not here? Anyway, that's what it looks like. What those, like, 14-year-old boys who never leave their rooms would eat. Okay? And it's, like, overly designed or overtly designed, sorry, for, like, the older kid or the tween or the teen or even the inept college kid who may be too old for the Lil Dippers, Mini Nuggets, and Stackables and Tiny Tacos of Lunchables, but is still coddled and cosseted and infantilized enough by their own infantilized and too highly attached parents to have been taught to make or have been made actual food. Okay, that's what it looks like to me. Like, oh, my kid grew up eating Lunchables and now they're 16, 18, and they're still completely um, reliant and dependent on their parents because the parents are pathetic and can't let go and never taught them how to eat food. So now here's a Lunchables for the older kid. A foodiness solution to a foodiness problem, which is what I love to say about this stuff. Because these are the kids who grew up on kid-sized finger foods and toddler treats from a bag, the squeezy fruit pouches, the yogurt from a tube, and all the other non-food foodiness snacks and mini meals and treats with ne'er a fork, knife, plate, or actual meal eaten at a table with two hands and a napkin in their lives. Okay? It's the handhold. It's the little dippers. It's the mini pancakes with the syrup baked right in. It's the wafflers, the French toast sticks, the... Uh, what are those called? Uncrustables. Remember the Golden Uncrustable Awards? This may be, we may be ready for one again. This is where we've gotten with all that snackable, dippable, eat in the minivan with the DVD playing or now the iPad going as you ride, all strapped into your highly supervised activities where there'll then be more snacks served before you're bundled back into the minivan and fed your homebound Happy Meal. This is the future of America, people. Okay, this is our youth. This is who's going to grow up and take care of me as I get older. And it's it's not pretty. I'm scared. Okay, now, by the time I was in fourth grade, 
I was coming home to an empty house, opening the door with my little key. We were called latchkey kids. We were the first ones. And I would, like, heat up a slice of, like, frozen leftover pizza or heat up some other leftovers from the night before. Or I would cook myself some pasta. So I was like, we didn't even have a microwave. I did it in the toaster oven, and I used the stove. And then I would entertain myself for a few hours in the afternoon until it was time to start cooking dinner because I had to make dinner for the family, too, on alternating nights with my sister. And you know what? That's how I learned to cook, and that's how I learned to feed myself, and that's how I learned to feed other people with actual food on a stove, not in a hundred teeny tiny packages of mylar and plastic that wound up in some landfill forever. Anyway, Lunchables Unloaded have things like a walking pizza, a walking pizza, right? Because taking a slice of pizza, folding it in half and walking it like in the opening scene of Saturday Night Fever is not enough. That's too hard, apparently, too much work. So they have a walking pizza. It's diced up pizza crust. It's like little crust nuggets and then a little bit of sauce and a little bit of cheese. And you toss them all together in this Mylar pouch and you put it in the microwave. And then it gets turned into this like sort of mushy pizza-esque glop, like a sundae glop. And then you eat it with a little fork that's provided. Now, to me, that's harder to stand there with the fork and eat that walking pizza than it would be to just get a slice from the place on the corner. But, you know, apparently I'm not tapped into the needs of that demographic because uh, I'm an idiot. I'm amazed, actually, that this one made it through consumer testing because, you know, require considering it does require the dexterity and the skill to actually manipulate and use a fork and to guide that fork into your mouth, which is not easy if you've never actually used those sorts of utensils before. I mean, why not just put the pizza in a squeezy tube? Right? Like the yogurt in the squeezy tube. Fill up a squeezy tube with pizza and then just suck it down. Or a pouch. This is better. A pouch with a little strap that you can just slap, like, attached to your face. And then you can just stick your fat face into it and graze sort of like a feed bag on a horse. Wouldn't that work better? Maybe it wouldn't even need a strap. It could just work with, like, suction. And it just sticks there. And then it just falls off into the subway tracks like all the other garbage. Or really, you know what? Why not just get a feeding tube inserted down your throat? That would be so much easier. You wouldn't even have to chew. And then you could get a colostomy bag for the other end, and you could avoid the whole messy process completely. Just in one end, out the other, boop. And, of course, there are also walking tacos uploaded, of course, whatever that means, walking tacos. Aren't tacos designed to be eaten while you walk? I mean, I eat and walk with tacos sometimes. I don't, really, because it's messy. And I like to relish my tacos. They're also uploaded sandwiches, which is totally bizarre to me that you'd have to buy this pre-made packaged little sandwich when making a sandwich is like probably the easiest thing you could do. And a four-year-old can make a sandwich or even a sandwich from a place like Subway would be better than eating this shit. And, you know, I don't give Subway any credit or a wide berth at all, but... I mean, at least, like, it's a sandwich made by human hands, right? I mean, because if you read the ingredient labels on the uploaded, it's such a pile of industrial crap processed shit with preservatives and additives and dough conditioners. And each one has, like, 30 grams of sugar in them, too, which is basically like eating a Snickers bar for lunch. No, not even a Snickers, because that has peanuts, and Snickers really satisfies. More like eating a Three Musketeers like Carl Meltzer got through his big run on. So maybe I'm the idiot because that's actually really good for you. I don't know. 
It's about the same with Subway, but at least, like I said, at Subway, someone's actually making the food, like a human, and you could get like iceberg lettuce and canned olives on it, so you at least get a vegetable, right? I mean, if we weren't there already, Lunchables uploaded have successfully now delayed adulthood even more than we as a country of overfed, overgrown toddlers had already become. This is like further than I ever thought we could go. Because now even your teens and your young adults and probably grown-ups, so to speak, grown-ups, can accomplish the all-too-taxing act of feeding oneself without ever having to actually purchase food or food items or prepare said items in any way or utilize a plate or a fork or a pan or a stove. Incredible. And of course, the irony is that they call them walking pizza and walking tacos when we all really know that the whole point is to provide something that can be eaten instead in a lazy boy chair without taking one's glazed eyes off of a screen. Because you can still text and eat with a Lunchables uploaded. It's uploaded already. No actual downloading required. Hashtag lazy piece of shit Americans deserve Trump for buying this crap. That's all I'm going to say about that. And that's all I can really manage this week because talking about this stuff is like running the Appalachian Trail in 45 days fueled on Red Bull. It's fine while it lasts, but then I need some real food and a good nap. So that's it from the Fallout Shelter this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Dave Tat, as always, in the booth. We'll see you next week. Follow us on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.